Last week, we uh, looked at how God revealed His care for us and His commitment to the declaration of the Gospel to all. Felix. Felix was an awful guy. He was the governor of Judea who was raised up from being a slave of Rome to being a governor in the province of Judea, and, but he was an awful governor. He was a violent governor against the Jews. And yet God saw fit to bring probably one of His most potent weapons against Him in Paul. Probably there was no greater testimony of how God could change somebody who was bent on violence into somebody who was now living for a different reason. Not for his own ambition. Paul was certainly ambitious before. Felix was ambitious. And God brought Paul, put him in front of it. He could have brought Paul some other way. Paul was in Caesarea before with Philip. And yet, he would not have had the audience with Felix that he had unless he came the way he came. So God knew what He was doing, just like He knows in our life what He's doing. But don't miss His commitment to the declaration of the Gospel to the people around you, the people around us. And so He has this deep commitment to that, and that shows His care for us. Shows His care. And we also saw His commitment to the development of godly trust. He left Paul there for two years. No preaching, no writing, just sitting in prison, thinking, meditating, thinking about all those scriptures. Says his friends could come and minister to him. I'm sure they probably bought maybe the parchments to him. They probably didn't care about that. He was innocent, by the way. <laughs> he was an innocent man who was being kept under house arrest there in chains in Caesarea. But you know, God through Luke goes into great detail into each one of these accounts of Paul's defense and his arrest to show that there's no violation of civil law. Paul is innocent of any violation. This, this is not about an insurrection against Rome, which is what they wanted. He did no wrong against the Roman government. In fact, all the charges against Paul were false. Everything they said. Paul told him, the only thing that you can really charge me with is preaching the Gospel and the resurrection. And remember, after Paul shared with Felix, by the way, how did he share with Felix? Hey, Felix, let me tell you about the righteousness of God. Why? You're not living very righteously. Self-control, Felix. Let me tell you about self-control. That's our response to God's standard. And let me tell you what's going to happen, Felix, to those who are held in account for falling short of God's standard. He didn't mince words with a guy who could take his head off. With a guy who could order him executed. He, he didn't mince words. He was straightforward. How often do we dilute the words because we're afraid people may not like us. We're afraid we may get canceled somehow. May lose our job. Whatever it is. Paul's life was at risk and yet he was still bold. And Felix... Hearing this bold proclamation, trembled. Imagine that. The guy in charge of all Judea for Rome trembling at a slave's words to him. Probably didn't see that happen very often. 
So for two years, Paul did nothing except sit in silence. And so we said sometimes a Christian life has periods of silence. Sometimes it's got periods of pain where we're not doing what we could be doing. Paul was a great writer. He was a great preacher. And yet for two years, it would look like a waste, but God doesn't waste anything. We talked about the only two places in Scripture where you see an innocent man left in prison is Joseph and Paul. I think they're connected. They both needed some time to cool off and really think about who they were serving and how the God of all creation wanted them to serve them and point to them. So this week, we go into chapter 25. We look at verses 1 through 27. And what we're going to see this week is a contrast in worldviews. Festus and Agrippa on this side, the Apostle Paul on this side. And their difference highlights the differences between selfishness and selflessness. As Festus's desire for personal gain and power clashes with Paul's selfless devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two types of men. Paul representing Jesus. Festus and Agrippa representing the world. Paul living for God. These men, these other men living for themselves. So really, there's just two principles that God reveals. One, He reveals in this text a life wasted on selfish pursuits. A life wasted on selfish pursuits. That's who we see in Festus and Herod. Two guys that if you were there in that culture, you'd go, wow, they're pretty big. Right? And you look at Paul, a guy in change, you go, he's nobody. Who are we talking about today? How many weeks we've been talking about Paul? How many weeks are we going to talk about Festus and Agrippa? Who really was the one who had the impact? And in Paul, we see a life worthy of the Gospel. That's the second thing God reveals. One, a life wasted on selfish pursuits. Two, this guy over here is a life worthy of the Gospel. And so let's go through the text and we'll kind of bring those out. But before we do, I want to remind you what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He says, listen, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That was Paul's words. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus as the example of leaving heaven to come to earth. That's our master. That's our example to follow. And in Paul, we see that. We do. We see him live a life worthy of that calling. And we certainly see a life wasted on selfish pursuit with Festus and Agrippa, and we're going to look at that. So starting in verse 1, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest... And the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning 
an ambush to kill him on the way. So get this. This is the Sanhedrin now planning the ambush. It's not just a group of men who have taken a vow. These are the spiritual leaders, the Supreme Court, planning an ambush on Paul because they want to kill him. What's happened for two years? What has Paul been doing? He's been doing nothing. I mean, he spent out of the picture. Do you realize since Paul went into the prison there and was left there, there have been two high priests, two changes of command. And yet there's still so much seething hatred for Jesus that they have not let His memory fade and they want Him dead. They don't, they're not comfortable that He's languishing in a prison in Caesarea. Why? Because he's effective. Yeah, and because Satan is the one who is the power behind it. See, we forget that. We look at people and we think, oh, this guy's doing this or this person's doing this. We don't attribute to Satan the power of influencing people that he has. Who did Jesus say was the father of the Jewish people who rejected him. Satan. You don't know me. You don't know my father. They were servants of Satan. And they want... Listen, Acts 21, 22, 23, and now 25, all you see is they want Paul dead. Why? Because of what? He's not an insurrectionist. Did Paul cause any riots anywhere? He didn't really cause the riots. It was other people stirring it up. Every case where Paul was brought up on charges, he was exonerated. They wanted to kill Paul. And so, this puts... Why, why, by the way, did Festus go to to, uh, Jerusalem right away within three days of taking command in Caesarea? He was put there by Caesar because Felix blew it really bad with a rebellion. And it was brutal. The Jews got really upset. And it was so bad that Caesar said, you're done. Pulled him off the scene. Sent Festus down there. So what is the first thing he does? He goes to where all the leaders are in Jerusalem to try to mend fences down there. Try to make things better. And when he gets there, they bring up a guy. He done, I promise you, Felix did not say, hey, there's this guy named Paul in prison. He didn't care about Paul. He goes there and they bring Paul up and he's trying to figure it out. And so he goes, listen, why don't you come back to Caesarea with me and bring charges against him? Hadn't they done that already? Yep. How'd that work out for him? They didn't, they, they didn't really want to do that. And so it says, Festus replied, verse 4, that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. What so, that's uh, 25 verse 4. Verse 5. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me and if there's anything wrong with the man or about the man, let them bring charges against him. Now after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So he was there eight, 
to 10 days. Why? Probably because they were still trying to find some kind of false charges, trying to get some witnesses. Somebody, surely there was somebody that could say something negative about Paul. But they didn't. So, he went back to Caesarea. When he had arrived, it says the Jews who came, who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. How about that? Once again, we see false charges. And once again, we see God inspiring Luke to write that his servant Paul was innocent. And so, it says, verse 8, Paul argued in his defense neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Here it is again. Paul's just flat out stating I'm innocent. I haven't done anything. And so Festus, being the good, righteous judge that he was, heard that and said, okay, you're free to go. That's not what happened. Because Festus wasn't righteous. He was an ambitious man. He was a selfish man. And so, wishing to do the Jews a favor, why does he want to do the Jews a favor? Well, what happened to his predecessor when they got mad and they had problems? He got relieved. He cared more about his own personal ambition than he did any sense of justice. He didn't care about justice. He said, I know, I'll compromise. So he said, Paul, verse 9, he said, Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? He said, I'll, I'll get Paul to go to Jerusalem, but I'll be the one judging him. Paul didn't go for that. Verse 10, Paul says, listen, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong as you yourself know very well. Now, he makes that statement. Paul's a Roman citizen. I guarantee you Festus, did, he, knew, he did know Paul was there. He wasn't concerned about it, but he knew he was a Roman citizen. And when Paul says, you know very well I'm innocent, Festus could lose his head if he hurt a Roman citizen uncondemned. He knew that. He knew that. And so, he says, verse 11, if then I'm a wrongdoer, I've committed anything wrong for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, another assertion of his innocence, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. Paul says, listen, I'm not trying to escape death. That's a promotion for me. Like that, I would love for God to bring me home. But that's not what my mission is. My mission is not to go home yet. My mission is to live for Christ here and to share the Gospel. And I've got to go to Rome. And now, I believe Paul is starting to see how he's going to get to Rome. Because he appeals to Caesar. And if you don't know anything about Roman history, the Romans had a 
uh, an appeal process that anywhere in the legal process, if somebody goes, I appeal to Caesar, that immediately cuts off what's going on at that level. There's no intermediate place. There's no appellate court. It goes right from where it is up to Caesar at that point. And if you don't do that, you can be in danger of being imprisoned or executed yourself. Festus knew that. And so Festus says, verse 12, okay, you can go into Caesar. That's what he says. When he conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. He had to make it look official. He knew he wasn't going to go against him. He couldn't do that. He couldn't take the chance. Verse 13, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Agrippa the king. This is Agrippa the second. It's the son of Agrippa the first. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out, right? He's a, not a great guy. And it says, and Bernice. Did you notice that? Who's Bernice? Anybody? Sister. It's his sister. Yeah, three times in this chapter and the next, it says Herod, Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa and Bernice. Why is it saying that? Why does it keep saying that? Because that defines Herod. Bernice is his sister that he has an incestuous relationship with. And everybody knew it. See, Bernice would get married to somebody and if they got killed or they got rid of her, she would always come back to live with her brother, her half-brother. And they would have sex. So she, wherever Herod Agrippa was, Agrippa too, there she was. And so Luke writes and Bernice twice in this chapter and once in the next chapter. And that just kind of defines Herod as a, a, a very immoral guy who sleeps with his half-sister. And so Herod is a guy who wasted his life on selfish pursuits just like, just like Festus. Both guys are very ambitious. Both guys live for themselves. Both guys live for today. By the way, Herod Agrippa was a descendant of Esau. Do you know that? He was an Edomite. He's the last Edomite you're going to see on the scene here. The last Herod you're going to see on the scene here. But what were the Edomites known for? What was Esau known for? Was he known for being a selfless guy who only lived for other people? Or was he known for, hey man, I don't care about my birthright. Give me, I got to eat now. Give me that stew. Right? The Edomites were pagans and they lived for themselves. That's what they were known for. Herod fit right into that mold. Now, Jesus told a story over in Luke chapter 12 about how sometimes people will misperceive Jesus' role in our life. They think that Jesus is supposed to just give us stuff. There are people that preach that. Over in Luke 12, Somebody said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me right now. And he said, Man, who made me a judge over you? He said, Take care. Be on your guard against covetousness. For one's life does not consist 
in the abundance of possessions. And then he told him a parable. He said, there was this rich guy. He had a lot of crops. And he thought, you know, what am I going to do with all these crops? Man, I've got so much. And in that, that culture, crops were money. In that culture, crops was power. And he goes, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down all my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. And then I'll store all my grains, all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have enough laid up for years. Eat, drink, relax, and be merry. But God said, Fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, who will they be? Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, we're just stewards of the stuff we have. That's the problem with selfish ambition, selfish pursuits. If you only pursue for yourself and you're not rich to God. Listen, there's nothing wrong with having things. But if you think those things are just your life is to build up your personal benefit, you've missed what Jesus is all about. And Paul didn't miss that. Paul got it. And that's why he was a man who lived a life worthy of the Gospel. Well, when Herod Agrippa shows up, Festus tells him, hey, I got this guy here, and I don't know what to do with him. The Jews want him dead. I tried to get him to go back there, but he, does, he appealed to Caesar. I don't know what to do. Maybe you can help me with him because I have no charges against him. He goes, verse, let's see, verse 14. He goes, and as they stayed there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left by Felix. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered him that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day I took my seat on the tribunal and I ordered him to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge. As evils as I thought of, I mean, they brought nothing that warranted death or really imprisonment, is what he's saying. Again, this is another assertion of Paul's innocence. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with them about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Festus says, Paul has a right to face his accusers. And then he lays out that Paul's only there really because he's preaching what? The resurrection. Yeah, the gospel. He's preaching the resurrection. Is that a life worthy of the Gospel? You bet. Here's the thing. He could have been released. He never caved. John Monger was held in prison over in um, Bhutan and Nepal. Deny Jesus and you can walk out. Just deny Him. He lives a life worthy of the Gospel too. You know that phrase, a life worthy of the Gospel, Paul mentions it. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. 
That's Ephesians. Philippians 1.27 Only let your life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, that I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12. We, and he's talking about how as a father, he exhorted the Thessalonians. He says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. Again, the same phraseology there. A life worthy of the Gospel. Colossians 1, 10-12. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Guys, we live in a time where you've got young people growing up now telling people that all you got to do is trust Jesus because it's His righteousness and you don't, you don't have to strive for holiness. That's legalism. You don't have to try to live a holy life. That's just legalistic. That's a bunch of garbage. Paul would never have preached that. In fact, I just read four verses where he says, live a life worthy of your calling. Not to earn your way to salvation, but because you have salvation. And so, what does it mean to live a life worthy of the Gospel? Well, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us. He goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, he goes on to say after he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, he goes, fully pleasing to Him, Bearing fruit in every good work. That's the first thing. Bearing fruit. Second, increasing in the knowledge of God. Third thing, be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So joyful endurance. Giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light in the light of the Gospel. So, here's the four things. Bearing fruit. That's walking in a manner worthy of the Gospel. What kind of fruit? Well, uh, the fruit of being a witness for Him in the world. The fruit of Galatians 2 where He says love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things, that fruit is walking in a manner worthy of the Gospel. So what do you do, Danny, if you're not doing those things? If you're not walking in a manner worthy of the Gospel, what do you do? And you realize that. You repent. You turn. You say, man, I'm not doing that. So bearing fruit is the first thing. Second thing is growing in our knowledge of God. 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babies desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow in your salvation and in your knowledge of salvation. So grow. Are we growing? If we're not growing, we should say, God, I'm sorry. Help me grow. Third, joyfully persevering in all circumstances. Not just when things are good. It's easy to endure good things, right? Back in Matthew 24, verse 12, it says, the love of many will grow cold, but those who endure to the end will be saved. 
Endurance, joyful endurance. That's another fruit of the life worthy of the gospel. And then fourth is being thankful for our salvation. First Thess 5.8 says in everything, what? Give thanks. Why? Not because I have a cancer diagnosis. I don't give thanks for that, but I give thanks that I have hope in spite of that. Amen. No matter what I'm going through, I can give thanks to God because He has redeemed me from the power of death in my life. Satan has no power. Death has no power. And so I'm thankful for that. Those are the things that define a life worthy of the Gospel. And we see that in Paul. And as I read, he said to Festus, hey, Festus says, I listened to their case. There's no legal charges. There's only the resurrection. Paul just says Jesus is alive. I'm not going to go into it, but in 1 Corinthians 15, if you go down 1-20, through 20, he says this is the first importance that Jesus died, was resurrected, appeared to all these people. He goes on to say, if this isn't true, then our faith is worthless, right? Our faith is worthless if that's not true. So Paul preached the resurrection. And notice verse 20. Festus says, being at a loss as to how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there. Why was he at a loss? He didn't know the way. Felix at least understood the way because of Drusilla probably, but Festus didn't know about the Gospel. So he's at a complete loss. He doesn't understand Judaism. He doesn't understand the resurrection. They don't believe in that. And so, he doesn't know what to do. So he says, verse 20, I, I tried to get him to go to Jerusalem. He says, but 21, but when he appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said, I'd like to hear the man myself tomorrow. He said, you will hear him. So he appealed to Caesar. Herod says, I want to hear him. He says, okay, tomorrow you're hearing. And then verse 23, so the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall. Pomp is pageantry. A cheap <laughs> display of high status, pretty much. And uh, they entered the audience hall with the military tribune, so these commander of thousands were there. The prominent people of the city. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So you see the pageantry of Rome all these people dressed in their nice clothes and then they bring in this guy who's been wearing the same thing for the last two years in chains and put him right in the middle. It's a spectacle. And it said, verse 24, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with you see this man whom the whole Jews... Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. This is again another assertion of his innocence. Guys, six times in this text that were just read today, he's asserted innocent. Do you know somebody else that six times was proclaimed innocent? And yet, Pilate ordered him killed too. 
And he's not ordering him killed, but he's keeping him in prison. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. You see, Felix or Festus didn't have a problem with him saying he's innocent now. Why? Because he's appealed to Caesar. So it's not on him. And so he says to him, verse 26, but I don't have anything definite to write to my Lord about him. Guys, how many people have tried to been write something to write something about Paul? Claudius Lysias doesn't know what to write about him. Nobody knows what charges to write on this guy. He's innocent. And they couldn't find anything to bring. No false charges, no, no accurate charges, nothing with evidence. And he says, Therefore I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so after that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. And notice he says again, verse 27, For it seems unreasonable for me to send a prisoner and not indicate the charges against him. I have nothing to write about him. Listen. Six or seven times in this passage, Paul's innocence is either referenced by himself or Festus. The only thing he's guilty of is preaching, guys, the resurrection. And this week we celebrate Easter, right? Philip Schaff, who was a historian, wrote the history of the Christian church. He says that the infinite test question to Christianity is the resurrection. It's either the greatest miracle that ever happened or the greatest delusion that ever happened. That's the hinge point of our faith. Frank Morrison was a British attorney who set out to disprove the resurrection based on evidence. So he went through and did all this research and examined all the evidence for the resurrection. And he was a skeptical lawyer about everything, but specifically about this. And guess what? At the end of his journey, he ends up writing a book, taking all the data he got in, writing a book called Who Moved the Stone? Saying that the resurrection was true. Evidence was overwhelming that the evidence that happened. Josh McDowell is a guy who did the same thing. He wrote more than a carpenter. Lou Wallace did the same thing, except he wrote a book called Ben Hur, in it where he tells, uh, he defends a resurrection in that book. Here's three things that Christians and non Christians can agree on. First, there was a guy named Jesus at some point in history that was crucified. Second, there was an empty tomb. There was an empty tomb. Third, there was an Easter proclamation. He is risen. Um, when Jesus was crucified, guys, he was taken off the cross. They pierced his sword with a side, uh, uh, or his side with a sword. Then they put him in this tomb. They put a two-ton boulder rock rolled in front of it. Then the Romans put a seal on it and a guard there. And that seal meant that if you broke that seal, then you had to answer to Rome, probably at the tune of uh, crucifixion. And yet the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Paul Althouse, who was a professor over in Germany, says the resurrection could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day or a single hour if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact. Chuck Colson 
I love this quote. I, I use it probably once a year. Uh, said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years. Never once, not one time, did any of them deny it after they saw him. Not once. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison, and they would not have endured that if they knew it wasn't true. He said Watergate took 12 of the most powerful men in the world and we couldn't keep alive for three weeks. Three weeks. We couldn't keep it. So you're telling me that 12 apostles kept alive for 40 years? That's impossible. It's impossible, he says. You see, they didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead. Jesus told them over and over, three days I'm going to rise again. The Son of Man has to be given up. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. He would tell them over and over. They didn't believe it. Yet, when He was crucified, they scattered. But after the resurrection, what? They became bold and courageous. What caused the change? It's because they saw Jesus. They saw Him. Why? What, what gain did it bring to the disciples to promulgate that story? What gain did it bring to Paul to lay out before Felix and Festus and Agrippa the story of Jesus and the resurrection? Did it bring him great monetary gain? Did it bring him great worldly uh, accolades? No. Andrew was crucified on a cross. Barnabas was stoned to death by Jews. Bartholomew was beaten to death with clubs. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was stoned. Matthew was killed by the sword. Peter was scourged and crucified upside down. I could go on through each one of these. They were all killed. Paul was beheaded. Luke hanged on an olive tree. Mark was burned to death. If the resurrection was a lie, they would have known it was a lie by then. For them to live a lie is inconsistent with what we know about what they wrote. All their writings. All their... That, listen, if you go back and read the early church fathers, the kind of men these men were, they were selfless men. They lived for other people. They didn't live for themselves. And if they did lie, they were deliberately deceiving the whole world for some purpose. But I don't think they did. They taught honesty, integrity, and truthfully about the resurrection. That's why Paul was here. That's why he's on trial. The Jews hated that. Why? Because the Jews were the tools of who? Satan. And the Jews, I mean the Jewish leaders. That's who I'm referring to, the Sanhedrin. Because the disciples were Jews. Paul was a Jew. It wasn't just Jewish people. It was the Jewish leaders who did not want to relinquish their power and admit that they were, were underneath the Messiah. You see, they're happy to admit they're under God, but when Jesus came on the scene, God in the flesh and says, I'm Messiah, follow me, they didn't want to follow. A lot of people like talking about Jesus. 
but they don't want to respond to them. And so what kind of person are you going to be? Which worldview are you going to buy into? Are you going to waste your life on selfish pursuits? Are you going to live a life worthy of the Gospel? When you think about Paul, and you think about what he did, what are we doing with our life, guys? This is the week of weeks to be really thinking about what am I doing with my life? What are my priorities? What are my goals? What do my priorities and goals have to do with the furtherance of the Gospel? If, if I took my daytimer, my, my uh, phone, my checkbook, and I looked at it, where am I spending my resources, my time, my efforts? Listen, this doesn't mean you've got to be out on a street corner with a Bible preaching the end is near. It means where you are, that you are God's ambassador. You're His priest wherever you are. That every conversation... Listen, every conversation Paul went into was a Gospel conversation. We've got to think that way. We're His priest. Am I living a life worthy of the Gospel? I can't answer that. Only you can answer that. But if you're not, do what Danny says. Do what God says. Repent. Repent. Just turn. Say, God, I'm sorry. Ask God, is there anything I need to repent of? And then do it. Danny, will you close our time in prayer today? What a praise and thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that we are here to be open our hearts to receive, that we will uh, especially this week, have an opportunity to share with many, many pagans that will celebrate Easter, but not know what they're going to talk about or celebrate. Uh, pray, Lord, each one of us will get an opportunity for a conversation uh, and to boldly uh, declare our love here. Amen. Amen.